uploading the virus. Eagle One, the package is being delivered. Hello out there on the internet. I am Matthew Galt, and this is Cyber. Let's talk about the hot new topic screaming from the lips of tech's hottest billionaires. Birth rates. For some time, Elon Musk's pinned tweet was about the declining birth rates in the United States, a man of conviction. Musk has sired at least nine children. Now, Mark Andreessen of Andreessen Horowitz is in on the act. He recently went on Joe Rogan and had a wide-ranging conversation that covered birth rates and eugenics. So why are some of the richest people alive obsessed with the U.S. having more kids? Really, it's a timely question, as I just had a vasectomy yesterday, and we'll return to laying down once we've finished recording here. That's why we're not live on Twitch this week, incidentally. Here to help me answer all of your questions about billionaires and the West's declining birth rates is Motherboard staff writer Edward Anguiso Jr. He just wrote about it on Motherboard. Sir, thank you once again for coming onto the show and uh, walking us through the follies of the tech world. Of course. Thanks for having me on. All right, I'm going to lean back now, continue putting the ice where the ice needs to be. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, you do what you got to do. Yeah. No, it was uh, shockingly easy and shockingly weird at the same time. But uh, anyway, so tell me about the genesis of this article you wrote that really focuses on Musk and Andreessen. Um, first, for those who don't know, he doesn't have quite the same profile as like an Elon Musk does. Who is Mark Andreessen and why would he end up on Rogan? Yeah, Mark Andreessen is this uh, investor. He's a billionaire uh, who is, pours his money through his venture capital firm, Andreessen Horowitz, where he's the co-founder. It's called A16Z into technology related products. Right. He's made a lot of money off his investments. In Facebook, primarily, where he sat on the board of. He's made a lot of money off of crypto, where he runs a fund that has, or he helps run a fund that has deployed about $10 billion in, um, in total uh, in uh, into the crypto space. Um, and, you know, he's someone who champions himself as, like, uh, very much in touch with what the future is going to be pushing web three metaverse crypto can't explain those things, but it's pushing them. Right. And so he kind of pops up because he is usually trying to situate himself at the center of articulating why these things need to be core parts of our lives, how they're going to make everybody's lives better. It's not too unlike how Elon Musk insists that his own creations and products are going to make life much better for human civilization, but only if they listen to him. Right. So what was there? I mean, Joe, the Joe Rogan conversations are like three right. hour ramble fests, right? Yeah. yeah. Uh, so, I mean, other than, I mean, birth rates is obviously one of the standout things that he talked about as they get into eugenics and Nazis and all sorts of weird stuff. Um, what, what other kind of things did they get into? Or is it just like metaverse, like typical Joe Rogan stuff? Yeah. I mean, so the conversation is basically one that situates around uh, the idea of, you know, heterodox thinking. Why or what are the things that people are interested in, um, main ideas in our culture? And so he's, you know, talking and trying to articulate how, you know, one thing that we need to think about is whether or not we are in support of having more people on the planet, right? Um, And what kind of world we want to build for those people. And if we believe that simply having more people will lead 
will lead to more technological innovation because there are more minds tackling more problems, uh, developing more solutions, generating more innovation. And, you know, for Elon Musk and for uh, Horowitz, I mean, sorry, not Horowitz, for Mark Andreessen, uh, they both kind of are in this Silicon uh, Valley universe where they believe that, you know, the goals of people here on Earth should be to try to improve life as um, by prioritizing technology so that as many people as possible in the far future um, can enjoy the best possible lives. It's this nebula nebula of ideas called uh, long-termism. And it, and it and basically says, you know, like more or less not, more or less, if you look at uh, the long-term potential of humanity, if you think about the potential of humanity, it can only be realized in the far future. The only way to do that is to ensure that humanity survives until then, so that as many people in the far future can enjoy the best possible life. If you have low birth rates, that's a huge concern, ostensibly, because uh, maybe our civilization is the best way of life. You know, uh, both, both of these people are huge shills for and advocates for Western civilization and believe that Western civilization is some discrete package of values that is, uh, is superior to all the rest in one way or another, right? Um, and so the thing to do is to support that, but falling birth, right, birth rates across the West are concerned to that, as are other things uh, for them. Artificial intelligence, uh, not really climate change, I think, because uh, they believe that we can solve it pretty soon. But, you know, things like that, that's basically like the general sort of animating principle there is um, long-termism um, and also a, a concern about Western civilization's birth rates falling. Uh, the West. One thing I thought that was interesting in the Andreessen part of the Joe Rogan show is he kind of, he poo-poos what uh, he says, like elites don't want mm-hmm. you to have kids. Right. Right. Which I just, I want, I want a citation on that because mm-hmm. uh, most elite, most elites that I can think of are also talking about birth rates. Like I, I would call, I would classify like Matthew Iglesias as a media elite who famously wrote a book called one billion Americans uh, which, you know, is, is this idea that we need a billion Americans, as you kind of said earlier, to like solve all these problems. Right. Right. Um, so do you see any evidence out there that elites are telling people not to have kids? No, I think what's really happening. I think there are a few signals that make sense for some people to interpret this. And then there are a few other things that they're operating on. I mean, like in general, it is pretty expensive to raise a child. A lot of people look at the political landscape right now, look at the reality of childcare and see that they're not really going to get any support from the state um, and that their options before them are incredibly expensive or time intensive, labor intensive. Right. Um, there's also, on the other hand, the fact that um, a lot of people are discussing or raising concerns about having children and bringing them into a world that seems to be getting worse. Right. But for people like these long-termers, long-termist uh, who believe that the future will only get better if only we listen to them and others who propose technological solutions and products like them, then the world is getting better and there's no rationale for not having children. And in fact, having children would help improve conditions long-term. They're not really concerned about, you know, if it's burdensome for you, or if, if you can't afford to have the child, or if you are concerned about bringing the child into the world for now, because those are concerns don't really matter in the long term, if we're thinking about the potential of humanity. And I think also it's, um, you know, as you said, like, there's an overreaction here to a specific conversation. I think Andreessen is 
specifically trying to argue that environmentalists are the ones who insist people shouldn't have children, and then environmentalists are elites that are advocating for one children for two. When it's really some people, there have been some strains of environmentalist thought um, which have said that we shouldn't have as many people on the planet um, and erroneously have, you know, argued that we are overpopulated, right? They've incorrectly said we're all overpopulated, uh, that we have an optimal population or carrying capacity, that there's a limit to how much food we can provide for everyone or produce and provide for everyone. Um, and, you know, he's referring specifically to those and overgeneralizing and saying, well, that's all of them. That's all the elites. That's all the environmentalists. They're the ones who don't really want you to have children, right? Even though he, he himself is not really able to, I guess, pinpoint, you know, how it's anything more than just like a erroneous observation he's making himself. Well, let's, let's talk about some of the ideological roots of this idea, which I think is pretty outdated now, actually this environment, this idea that environmentalists are saying there's too many people that is like a 1970s Malthusian, you know, the population bomb kind of thing when there were far, far, far fewer people on the planet and people were far more worried about it. Um, so can you talk about like, what the book, the population bomb was, why it's important to this conversation and kind of like what these under, what these, the roots of this idea are. Yeah. So the population bomb comes out of like this tradition. Uh, I want to say in the 1960s, right. Where, you know, people are trying, you know, 19, well, 1960s is when a lot of these books came out, but the tradition goes a little bit further. It's, uh, I would say after world war two, um, where people are trying to raise concerns about the environment, concerns about uh, people, too many people being on the planet, but a uh, revival of like this Malthusian, this Thomas Malthusian idea that, um, you know, population growth will grow, will, will increase at a rate that's exponential, and then the resources that we have will dwindle and we won't be able to sustain that growth, right? That it'll grow faster than we'll be able to be sustained. And so we need to curb the population or, or put a cap on the population or create policies that disincentivize people from having a certain amount of, of children that contribute to that growth, right? And so the population bomb comes after a long series of books in the 20 years after World War II that are arguing there's too much population growth going on. Typically, this population growth, they they focus on is going on in the global south and they're saying oh well you know poverty is linked to the fact that all these people are having too many kids so we need to you know reduce the amount of kids that they have uh sometimes that might mean we need to do uh, modernization programs because if we modernize the countries then we'll reduce the birth rate sometimes this is for sterilization programs as they did over this over the 20th century where they're sterilizing people in Puerto Rico and India right and countries in the global south that they're like oh well the birth rate might be too explosive here and the population uh, bomb comes in 67 68 and it's trying to say you know not only is it that in the future we're going to have to deal with food shortages but that actually we're going to have that in 10 years 20 years that overpopulation is going to devastate the world's food supply, and we're going to have mass famine and riots and civil disorder and collapse, right? And that if we don't do something now, we're going to lose uh, all of human civilization. And obviously, I mean, civilization didn't collapse in the 1970s and 80s, but that was like the fever, that was the pitch, you know, that, um, and the zealotry that 
kind of occupied a lot of these people's minds when they thought the world really was going to end because we had too many people there uh, in the world and that we would be unable to feed all of them. We didn't have the technology, we didn't have the agricultural resources, and we didn't have the technical uh, technical expertise to actually grow enough uh, food to feed these people. And even though these things have been disproven each time they've come up, they still persist, I think, because of a lot of ideas that are baked into the culture about uh, scarcity or about common resources or about what happens if you let people freely use things that are incorrect and have been disproven, but repop up because they're convenient for other political purposes. Yeah. I think it's interesting. It's also a, like a big misreading, especially from the perspective of the sixties, a big misreading uh-huh. of like the technological advancements that had happened in the past 50 years around like wheat production. Um, yeah. uh, you know, I think, thinking about two Nobel prize winners, one, uh, evil to his core and one perhaps not, uh, you know, Fritz Haber invents a new way to nit- to put nitrogen into the soil and explode crop yields before world war two is a Prussian, uh, living in what was, or born in what was, what is now Poland, um, goes on to invent mustard gas, uh, deployed in world war one. And then, at the around the time the population bomb is being is being discussed, a guy named Norman Borlaug figures out a way to like I can't remember how exponentially he increases wheat growth, but something that gets help really helps get around uh, the food problems, the food shortages. Now, now uh, food shortages are very real for very other reasons for for other reasons more related to climate and uh, geopolitical crises uh, in some of the breadbaskets of Europe. Um, but it's also a distribution problem, right? It's about getting the food. We can produce lots of food in this, on this planet. Now we're not great at getting the food where it needs to go efficiently. Um, yeah. Right. Yeah. You know, I think, I think that's also part of the thing, right? A lot of these arguments, when you also step down, step into and, uh, examine them, not also advocating for as a way to change, you know, and as a part of their solutions, not advocating for a total overhaul of our food production and distribution systems, even though doing so would meet the needs of hundreds of millions of people who do have to suffer through famines and have food uh, or starving or food insecurity consistently. Right. Instead, it is like these arguments are usually strict, very alarmist, um, part of larger political projects, usually to privatize uh, commons and, and subject them to market logic and say that it's through this they'll be efficient and optimal and that's how we'll avert the crisis. Or to insist that the ways that what people really need to do is rein themselves in, minimize their own needs and wants, and. Uh, oh. and give more space to private entities to run daily lives so that we can avert the risk of collapse, right? I think, you know, a lot of these are alarmist, you know, ridiculous uh, um, arguments, predictions that never came to pass, um, but did fuel a wave of public policy that acted as if they were inevitable, um, and instead tried to tinker at the edges or punish people who were made to be the scapegoats for it, which is blaming poor people, black and brown people, people in the global south, um, and trying to deter them from having children, trying to uh, force onto them 
specific policy reforms uh, to change how their countries were run, how their agriculture sectors worked, how their economies functioned, um, based on uh, notions of population growth that had nothing to do with reality. Right. All right, cyber listeners, we're going to pause there for a break. We'll be right back after these words from our sponsor. All right, cyber listeners, thank you for sticking around. We are back on talking about uh, population control and eugenics and Mark Andreessen and why tech billionaires are so invested in declining Western birth rates. Um, All right, so another thing to Andreessen's credit in this Joe Rogan interview, they start talking about eugenics and Nazis. Kind of how did that come up and why... I guess, how does that play into this conversation, rather? I think, you know, the discussion of Nazis came up because there was discussion about eugenics, right? And Mark Andreessen was trying to make the point that a lot of environmentalist arguments warning about exponential population growth, about how more people would despoil the environment, were linked to eugenic arg- eugenics arguments that were made um, in the 20th century. Well, and on that account, he is right. I mean, a lot of the arguments um, warning about population growth in the global south would then say, okay, well, we need to sterilize these people, right? We need to sterilize them for two reasons. One, not just because we want to curtail population growth, but two, because we want to use policy to in- encourage the population growth of superior of races, right? Of people with higher IQs, of people with cultural values um, that we want to prioritize under, under the belief, you know, under racist, eugenicist beliefs that um, you could and encourage the, uh, the potential, the long-term potential of humanity to be as, as, as great as possible, as developed as possible, if you want about this, this uh, policy, this public policy initiative, right? And I think in that way, you know, he is right that the Nazis came in, they discredited eugenics, but instead of eugenics com- uh, completely disappearing, it disaggregated, and you saw genetic engineering and population control emerge as two distinct discussions that sometimes would touch each other, right, in different forms. You see some of the genetic engineering stuff still persist um, and talked about in different ways. Um, one way might be in how it manifests in some of the futurist, transhumanist, posthumanist discourse. We have individuals who think the way for humanity to go forward is we need to genetically engineer people eventually. We need to merge them with advanced forms of robotics. We need to push the boundaries on what is human and what isn't. 
Um, you have the population control still come in as concern about ecological uh, degradation because a large amount of human beings might be unsustainable in some region. So you have some threads of the eugenicist argument still persisting, but decoupled from the racist, uh, um, let's eliminate these groups of people and uplift other groups of people so that the humanity can look like whatever we believe is a superior group of people. Um, but I think then, you know, he overcorrects and thinks, well, there, these things may have disaggregated, but they're still, they're still like inherently um, racist, uh, kind of exterminist viewpoints that they were before. When in reality, it's just that I think the core, what has persisted can develop into that problematic, but like it's not just environmentalists. It's also tech, you know, it's also these techno utopians. It's also these like Silicon Valley individuals. It's also these, um, you know, libertarians who he is in that camp of, right? Yeah, it seems like all of these dreams of the future require an inordinate amount of control over the individual in order to realize their quote unquote long term goal, right? Mm-hmm. Do you I think th- a lot of these? Oh, sorry, sorry. No, I was no, going to say I, I agree. Just that, yeah, I agree. Like a lot of these things require humans humans to become something they're not. You know, usually antisocial, market oriented beings instead of collaborative and social and, and cooperative, right? So, uh, something I thought was interesting that you check that you write about in here is that uh, is Kim Stanley Robinson also yeah. has flirted flirted with the idea of like global population and you know, the increase in population. Can you talk about, uh, you know, science fiction writer, can you talk about like what their thoughts on this were? Yeah. Kim Stanley Robinson wrote a pretty interesting, uh, book, um, the ministry of future, which is a look at like how climate change might develop and be addressed. If a mass, a mass death event occurred. Right. And the inciting incident in the book is a heat wave in India, which kills uh, millions of people, I believe. And how um, it results in, a, you know, the policy response, uh, an attempt at the highest levels to try to organize some sort of international response, and then like an underground um, response uh, with people who survived or were in the country when the uh, mass death happened, and go about doing terrorism essentially, and and then political violence to, um, uh, deter, like you know, deter people from going down and doing business as usual in the midst of climate change, right? Um, in this book, a lot of proposals are put forward. Some interesting, um, some nonsensical. I think, or and some worrying. I think some of them are, you know, in the in the later camps would be like the carbon coin that he proposes, which is a cryptocurrency that's issued to help fund a transition away from fossil fuels, but also this sort of optimal global population and the idea that, like, you know, two to four billion people would be ideal for humanity to not have to worry about uh, a footprint that would make climate change um, feel like an inevitable apocalypse, right? Whether that would be because it would, they, would, they would simply not consume a certain level of goods or emit a certain level of carbon or require a certain amount of or a large amount of the planet to be subservient and reformed and terraformed to meet the, uh, meet the needs of, of human beings, right? And, you know, this... Is an idea that I don't think has really popped up in much of Kim Stanley Robinson's writing, you know. Um, 
And so part of it is hard to determine if he is himself advocating for it. I think it was, it was put there partly because um, there are a bunch of solutions he has looked at, you know, and, and thought about and tried to consider. Population uh, control has emerged as one of them. Um, uh, and, and, you know, his, I'm not, you know, of course, it's not going to be like, let's get rid of billions of people more so like, let's try to ensure that people don't have uh, X amount of kids or reduce the birth rates until humanity is just at that level. But in other places, he has talked and explicitly advocated, you know, in columns about how the maybe a better approach is to just move humanity to smaller sections of the planet and reserve more parts of the planet for natural reserves um, or zoning it out away from any sort of industrial use or residential or habitual use um, and instead focusing on cities, scaling them out and up to hold more human beings. And I think that idea is the one to, you know, if you're going to do one, that one idea makes more sense to land at than saying, let's not let people have kids um, or let's not like radically restructure how we produce and consume and demand and, and, and require things for our lives um, so that we can still sustain the amount of people that we have. So I want to switch tracks kind of here towards the end a little bit and get, get some big picture questions going. So this, mm-hmm. this long-termism, this kind of Muskian ideology, it feels an awful lot like mortgaging the present to pay for a future we are not even sure is going to happen. Mm-hmm. Um, do you agree? Disagree? Yeah, no, I think, I think that's a pretty fair fast, uh, assessment, right? Building out a nightmare world, justifying it because you think the far, far, far future will be fine. Right. In the ends, justifying the means. Right. Essentially. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I would, it strikes me that there is also a strain of climate activism that has a little bit of the same thing going on, that, that we have a future that needs to be averted. And because of that, we have to mortgage pieces of our present to do it. Uh, do you think, do you see a distinction there though? Yeah. You know, I think, I think, you know, when it comes to climate activism, the range in which the range of that sort of discussion, the mortgaging, the discussion happens in a way that's different from, just long-termism, where the long-termism, I mean, a lot of the times what they're talking about is how many people, suffer, how much suffering is fine today, so that in the far future, everyone can enjoy themselves as much as possible. And I think, whereas here, a lot of the climate activism is asking, like, what are the actual things we can do? Um, what is feasible? What's not feasible? And what might be feasible or might not be feasible. And what do we think the trade-offs are if we invest in one thing or another? You know, I think that, for example, there's been uh, one thing that kind of pops up is degrowth um, a lot, right? I think, you know, the premise or the arguments around degrowth are like, okay, well, how do you actually reduce demand for certain goods or reduce production for certain goods or the supply of these things without killing large amounts of people without causing mass amounts of, of, you know, suffering through economic collapse, through shortages and, and so on. Right. And, and so there, then the mortgaging might emerge with like, okay, do we 
oppose that and try to do some sort of like slow crawl towards a greener capitalism and then eventually transition to a decarbonized capitalism you know do we want to try to do a shock and immediately jump to it no matter what happens uh, you know like where where does it fall how much more of the, of the of the business as usual can continue and what parts of it can be siloed off uh, to continue whereas i really do think like long termism is more so like yeah we know and we accept and there's a lot of suffering going on in the world today, but the future is so much better. And that is part of the price you have to pay. The price of having a future where people live on Mars or where humanity doesn't go extinct or where we have artificial intelligence uh, sentient or where we are functionally immortal is that um, a billion people, you know, either starve in famines or don't have reliable access to food. Um, and that hundreds of millions will migrate uh, over the next few years, the next few decades, uh, if not billions, because we are trying to build the infrastructure, the foundation for that future, where 100, 300, 1,000 years from now, who knows how many untold billions of people will be a little bit better off, much better off than uh, we are. I'm glad you said functional immortality, too, because I think that there's... Uh, implicit in the ideas that Musk and Andreessen spout is the idea that they will be around to see that future, right? They're talking about futures that they believe that they will be a part of. Yeah. 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 You know, I think, I think that's a really good point. I mean, a lot of the stuff that, for example, Musk is talking about with space, you know, there's no reason to think, even if he puts someone in space any time within the next decade or two, there's no reason to think anyone will be going to space at a reasonable price for a reasonable amount of time for decades and decades and decades and decades to come, centuries, arguably, right? That we won't have some sort of outpost that'll hold anyone other than scientists, military contractors, uh, eccentric, wealthy individuals, um, and a few people who might win or be, you know, uh, subsidized in some sort of lottery system to go up there. Like, it's not, it's just not conceivable. But, be, you know, part of it is, you know, like you said, either a belief that they're going to be a part of that future, or, which I think a lot of others do operate on, a cynicism and a willingness to just lie about it because they're selling a thing and puts them in a better position, gets people more interested in, and buying it and giving them influence and power. And you know what? If it doesn't come to pass, then they die. And that, then it doesn't matter, you know? It's interesting, too, because it's built on this very, like, American mm-hmm. dream. Uh, this frontier spirit thing that we do, where, mm-hmm. well, you know, the country was founded by people who couldn't deal with the problems they had in the place they, they were at, fled, and then went to a quote unquote untouched land, which we know is not, mm. not true. Um, and then so many of the successive political crises in America after that were solved by um, land expansion, mm-hmm. like just people kind of moving outward, getting away from the people that were bothering them so they could do their own thing. And now mm-hmm. we're looking to the stars to do that. Yeah. You know, and it's like, just, I think also to build onto that frontier thing. I mean, we have plenty of frontiers also that we haven't even decided to do in that sense, right? Why is it that space is being the one? 
Well, because, you know, if we are really interested in going where people haven't gone and that sense of wonder and adventure, then why not spend an inordinate amount of resources building out infrastructure underwater, you know, so people could live in habitats underwater? It'd be much, it'd be infinitely easier, right? You would not be, you would not be millions of miles away uh, from uh, Earth, right? In if you're going underwater, it's beyond Earth, right? The infrastructure to get out of any situation or emergency would be easier to build out. You'd be less on your own if something goes wrong. Um, and there's still a lot that we don't know about this entire section of our planet. And yet, the interest is going uh, to space because there's nothing there because it's easier to capture people's minds and, and paste their imaginations onto it. And it's easier to make a profit, frankly, because... The avenues for going to space are through atrophied uh, space uh, agencies, right? That are now just locked into private public partnerships with a few corporations. So if you're one of those three corporations, it makes more sense for you to just be like, no, we've got to go to space. The future's in space. And also uh, give me $4 billion. You know? <laughs> also, so can- Star Trek was way cooler than Sequest. I'm sorry. I mean, that's also true. I mean, like, I'm not going to say that uh the visions we've had of space aren't cool uh but it is that like the visions we've had of space are not feasible on any realistic time scale of our lives whereas the visions or the visions of space they're not realistic and the visions of what these people are proposing are so like so mediocre and such shallow husk of those visions right that you have to wonder why they're why even bother with what they're offering and trying to pr- propose, you know, like they're not offering to build an enterprise. I remember when I was uh, I was in high school, there was this batshit fucking uh, plan that someone had put up to uh, build a fleet of USS enterprises that would just do reconnaissance missions around the solar system over uh, over the course of fifty years. You could build out five of them. And they wouldn't, you know, they wouldn't, they would travel at reasonable speeds based on the technology we had. You could staff them with science missions. You could do flybys through parts. Was it feasible or not? I don't know. But like that in of itself, if we're interested in those visions, is much more interesting than uh, going into low Earth orbit for 30 seconds with Jeff Bezos and popping a bottle of champagne, right? Or going to die alone on a husk. Of a of a planet um, in a moon penal colony or in a, a Mars penal colony that's owned by Tesla and SpaceX and Neuralink. Wait, were they going to build the Enterprises on Earth and then send them up? Because it like uh, no, 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 yeah, because you got to yeah, build yeah. them in space, right? <laughs> exactly. Yeah, it was. A, it like I said, it's a it was a batshit plan. They wanted to they wanted to focus on building out more infrastructure in space so that. You could actually have a, a shipyard or figuring out how to reduce the cost of payload so that as much as possible could be not built in space. And then you have a little bit of a bare bones infrastructure to build things in space. But of course, none of that will ever happen. That's not going to happen. We can barely you know, figure out how we're going to uh, fund climate infrastructure or renewable infrastructure. Right. But that. I mean, show me a billionaire who is who who says that they grew up watching the Enterprise and actually wants to build anything that would go through uh, that would do any sort of like reconnaissance mission, other than just like have a colony with their name on it. Right. They all want gold pressed latinum. None of them want replicators. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> 
sir. Thank you so much for coming <laughs> on to Cyber and walking us through this before it turns completely into a Star Trek episode. <laughs> yeah. I'll send you those things. It was, it was, I don't know. I st- actually, I'm going to revisit it because I'm like, was it? How unrealistic was the plan? Probably batshit stuff. Yeah, the, the article on the site is Why Are Elon Musk and Mark Andreessen Obsessed with Birth Rates? Uh, if you like the show, please follow us on Twitch where you will be get notified uh, when we go live again after uh, next week after I'm done resting my body. <laughs> Thank you all so much, and we will talk again here soon. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute.